Isaiah 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Father, would you give us hope? Would you give hope especially to those who are despairing this morning, to those who know they are weak or they are powerless against their many enemies? Would your word now bring light, joy, and freedom to us by your Spirit's power? We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. King Charles III, if you're familiar with the royal scene, you know he has several titles associated with him. It depends on the nation that you're in. He's addressed by different titles. In Canada, he's known as His Majesty, Charles III, by the grace of God of the United Kingdom, Canada, and his other realms and territories, king, head of the commonwealth, defender of the faith. Royal titles like these, they tell us who the ruler is, their qualifications for their ruling, uh, the extent of their powers, their relationship with their subjects, the kind of society that they're ordering the titles here given to the coming king, to Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin Mary, some 800 years after these words were first spoken to Ahaz and Judah, they give us hope in our gloom as well, light in our darkness, joy in our suffering. This, these words, of course, were true in Ahaz's day, also in the time just before Christ's coming and even in our own day, though we stand on the other side of Christ's first coming and we're awaiting his second and final advent. Over the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at each one of these titles and asking what kind of hope that they ought to bring to us. Again, if you look at verse 6, these are the titles that are given for the child born to us, the son given. He is called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. It's this child this king, this Jesus, who is to be our hope. The first title that we'll look at this morning is the first one, Wonderful Counselor. And this is, this is the message of Isaiah 9, or the message of this sentence for us this morning. Uh, just uh, Sorry, in one sentence. You can have hope because Jesus is the Wonderful Counselor. You can have hope because Jesus is the Wonderful Counselor. You can have hope for the future where you didn't before. 
You can have light and joy and freedom where right now it doesn't feel like there's any. No matter how bleak or gloomy your circumstances are, no matter how dark and frightening the external realities you face, no matter where your political leaders might be driving you to next, because Jesus has come and he is the wonderful counselor. Our outline this morning shows us how Jesus gives us this hope. And this is the first, this is the first point. As the wonderful counselor, Jesus gives us hope by shining his light. He gives us hope by shining his light. Uh, the word wonderful here in wonderful counselor, in Hebrew, really that word lies closer to the word supernatural than anything else. When we say wonderful, we like, oh, it was a wonderful meal. We don't mean it was a supernatural meal. We mean it was just a really good meal. It was super good. Um, but in Hebrew, the word means something similar to miraculous. Uh, a miracle is something that's often called a sign and a wonder. The promised son in Isaiah 9 has counsel and he has wisdom that's supernatural in quality. It's off the charts. A counselor back in Isaiah's day, again 800 years before the time of Christ, wasn't, wasn't wildly different than our conception of what a counselor is today. It would be a wise and a trusted source of, of insight and wisdom. Uh, rulers would, would stack their courts with wise counselors that would help the king or the queen through tricky political and state issues. All rulers, really all people, need good counsel. No person, no ruler has absolute wisdom, and so wise people surround themselves with, with wise counselors, people who can give them sound advice, sound feedback when something tricky comes. That's what Proverbs 11 tells us. Uh, where no counsel is, the people fail. But in the multitude of counselors, there's safety. Now there's a problem with counselors, Okay. Uh, just like in, in their day and in ours, and it's, it's just this, that they're finite and they're fallible. Right? Counselors are capable of giving good advice. They're also capable of giving really bad and awful counsel. Counselors might seem like they have your best interests at heart. They may seem like they're knowledgeable and trustworthy and helpful. They're well-credentialed, but they might give you advice that actually is destructive. Sometimes they do so maliciously. Sometimes they just do it to their own incompetence, due to their own you know, blind spots. They don't realize they're giving bad advice. Ahaz, no doubt, had counselors with him, around him, who advised him to make this alliance with Assyria. Ahaz, listen, trusting God is not a sound military strategy. I don't care what Isaiah tells you. For the good of Judah, for the good of its people, for its safety, you need to make this deal with Assyria, and you need to make it quick. But the wonderful counselor who is coming will not fail to tell us exactly what's right. His counsel can always be completely trusted. Now, it's a good thing. Listen, it's, I don't want to dunk on counseling this morning. Um, it's a good thing that receiving, receiving counseling in, in the professional sense is, is much more accepted today than it has been in, in previous times. There's not the same kind of shame and stigma uh, to admit that you need help, to admit that you're seeing someone to talk through issues. But as we see in Judah's alliance with Assyria, as the astronaut Chris Hatfield observed, um, there's no problem so bad that it can't be made worse. Bad counsel and bad counselors can make your problems, can make your darkness so much more and profoundly worse. I was speaking with a, a good friend of mine who's a professional counselor in Ottawa, and she said many people that she knows can trace the breakdown of their marriages, the, the breakdown of relationships with their kids and good friends to bad counsel 
that they've received from professional counselors. See, uh, uh, bad counselors can cause a real problem. Um, my friend also wants to say that you, you can have Jesus and a good counselor, but a good counselor is somebody who says to you that there are things that Jesus can give that even the best counselor can't touch. A human counselor can try to help you understand some of your problems in darkness based on the things that you've shared with them. They can give you limited inhuman tools for trying to deal with some of that darkness, and that can be good. But we also have to admit together the, the, the limits of human counsel. But the wonderful counselor that's coming knows no limits like this. He knows you. He knows your sins. He knows your darkness, and he knows it perfectly. He sees everything. And he knows, exactly, he knows exactly what to do with it. When Jesus enters into darkness, this is what happens. His perfect light shines, uh, shines and chases it away. Uh, the heading for this point, if you can remember, way back when I first gave it was, the wonderful counselor gives us hope by shining his light. In verse 2, if you look at verse 2, God promises Judah. Judah, who is in a mess of darkness, who has been on the receiving end of bad counsel and has acted on it, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Isaiah tells Ahaz, though you've made a mess of everything, your future now looks black, it looks grim. The wonderful counselor is coming for you. He is with you and he is for you. He comes to give you hope where there wasn't any by shining a light. Jesus says the same. He says it in John chapter 8. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of light. See, Jesus can be wholly trusted. He can be wholly trusted with the darkest parts of your life because he is the wonderful, perfect, miraculous counselor who gives us hope by shining his light. Our second point, the wonderful counselor not only gives us hope by shining his light, but he gives us hope by promising us joy. He promises joy to those who don't have any. Look at verse 3. Isaiah is talking to a nation that, again, has shipwrecked itself, to a people that's ceased to obey God, and he speaks more words of hope, not words of judgment, words of, of blessing and hope. You, God, he says, have, have multiplied. You have blessed the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Now, one of the interesting things about prophetic speech in the Bible like this is that it often speaks about things that lay in the distant future as if they're already accomplished right now. In biblical linguistics, this is called the prophetic perfect. So, though this was a very low time in Judah's history, though they actually had centuries more of trouble ahead of them, God tells them that the joy he has planned for them is so certain it's such a settled reality that he can speak to them as if it's already happened, as if it's here right now. God's people are to have such confidence and certainty that the sun is just about to dawn, that even in the bleakest of darkness, they can have that joy now. By promising certain and lasting joy in the future, God is giving hope to his people in the middle of their suffering. Their circumstances... that. The circumstances of Ahaz and, and the people of Judah, their circumstances didn't change, actually. And for many of us, our circumstances won't change. We will continue to have to deal with pain and with suffering. But this is the hope that we have, that we can have joy now because of what's promised to us in the future. 
There's an old story. I think I've told it here before. Um, it's about a, a poor man in an obscure country village who one day receives a, a letter from a distant relative informing him that he's actually the heir of an immense fortune. This, he has untold wealth waiting for him, and now he only needs to travel to a far-off city many, many miles away in order to claim this rich inheritance. And so the poor man hitches up his old horse to his old cart, and he starts the long journey. But on the way, he faces many obstacles. He's harassed by his neighbors. They think he's a fool for going. Maybe the letter's just a fake. It's a fake promise. His old horse, you know, can't take the journey, so the man has to walk for much of the, much of, much of the way. His cart falls apart constantly. He has to either repair it or, or make do with, with wobbly wheels. How is this man supposed to deal with his present, very real, very difficult trouble and discouragement in light of the promised inheritance awaiting for him. How are you supposed to deal with your health problems, your, your deep relational disappointments, lost opportunities, regrets, pain that haunts you constantly? How are you supposed to view these current disappointments and very real pains in light of the joy the wonderful counselor promises to you? You're to face your pain and your sufferings in hope. Because the wonderful counselor has promised you joy. He has guaranteed it to you. He's promised that your inheritance, rest from your oppressors, freedom from trouble is certain. And so you can face your current problems now in hope. Because Christ has come. Because he's promised life and joy in its fullness. We can walk through the darkness and trouble in our life, as real as that is, in hope. Friends, trust him. Walk with him. Keep the faith. Don't give up hoping he has promised joy and he is trustworthy. He is a wonderful counselor. He will never let you down. The words he promises to you are true. The wonderful counselor, again, he gives us hope by shining his light, by promising us joy, and third, by setting us free. By setting us free. The greatest hope Isaiah's words gave to those in Judah in the 8th century BC, was the hope that they would finally be free from all of their oppressors. Judah was, again, very weak and vulnerable. They accepted this alliance with their enemy Assyria out of fear. They knew they couldn't put up a meaningful fight against Assyria or against Israel and Syria. They were stuck between a rock and a hard place. And just before Jesus' birth in Bethlehem, God's people still felt that way. They were oppressed and they were powerless, only this time it was a different empire. It was the Roman Empire ruling over them. They were subjects, they were imprisoned in their own land. And so when you look at verses 4 and 5 of our text, of the peace and joy that will come when the rod of Judah's oppressors is finally broken, as on the day of Midian, that's describing a, an ancient battle that God fought for uh, his people and liberated them, Isaiah is saying, there's a day that's coming like that day where God himself will fight for you, where he will set you free from your enemies. In verse 5, you see this promise that, uh, that, that the wars that surround God's people will end. Even the garb that their oppressors wear, their, their bloody coats and their stamping boots, they'll be thrown away, they'll be useless. They'll be useful only to be burned as fuel for the fire. God's people then were desperate to be free. They were, they were so tired of being oppressed. 
And so these words spoken by Isaiah with, with, with the looming threat of Israel and Syria and Assyria must have seemed unbelievable to them. Too good to be true. How could this possibly be real? We have no power in ourselves. And again, maybe the promise of freedom feels unbelievable to you too. You felt weak and oppressed and overwhelmed and without hope for so long, whether that is because of sickness or sin or worry or marital difficulty, uh, doubts, debt, difficulty, perhaps even a dangerous relationship. This is the air that you've breathed so long that you've given up hope that things could possibly be better, that you could be set free. But God promises freedom for his people. How will he do it? In Isaiah 9, how will he set his people free? How will he make good on this promise that, that he tells his people to dare to believe? How will God deal with their very worst enemies? How will he finally put away such darkness and give freedom? This won't be a military operation. God will not send in the tanks to crush his enemies. No, he's going to send a baby. That's what verse 6 says. God is sending a child, a son. His name will be Jesus. He will be Emmanuel. He will be God with us to give us hope and win us freedom from all that oppresses us. This wonderful counselor, before he frees us from our oppression, will himself be oppressed and bound. Our greatest enemies, sin and death, could only be crushed if this Jesus himself was crushed for us and in our place. This is what the cross of Jesus is all about. Uh, the one promised in chapter 9 of Isaiah is the Jesus who Isaiah chapter 53 describes was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's what the wonderful counselor comes to bring, to offer his own life for us so that we could be finally set free. Let's finish here. This is, this is what Isaiah 9 promises to his people this morning, that you can have hope because Jesus is the wonderful counselor. And so the question for Ahaz and for Judah is, will you believe this? The question for the people awaiting Jesus' birth uh, under the thumb of Roman rule is, will you believe God's word more than what you can see with your eyes right now? And the question for you who are hearing these words of promise of the wonderful counselor who has come and is coming again is, will you bring your sin and your darkness into his light? Will you walk with him through your current suffering and your troubles, trusting in his promised and sure joy that is coming? Will you be in awe of the cross and come to the, the feet of it, looking to the one who suffered in your place in order to set you free? Because you're invited. You're invited to trust in this Jesus, who is our hope, who is our wonderful counselor. Now may you, may you worship and love and trust this Jesus promised to you, walking in his light, trusting his counsel, living in real joy, in finding freedom in him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to us. We ask that you would open our hearts to his coming. Help us to wait in hope until he comes again. We pray that in Christ's name.
Amen.